Welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London, for another conversation about architecture and the business or the practice of architecture. This is maybe a slightly different podcast to the usual architectural fair. There's no obscure design speak, no academic waffle. Instead, we're going to be talking to leading figures in the field in order to gain an expert insight into a particular issue that we hope will be of interest to students and practitioners alike. So today, we're delighted to be in the offices of Hawkins Brown in central London, and we have Nigel Osteen, Delivery Director, and the author of too many books to mention, but in typical fashion, I'll have a go at citing a few, RIBA Job Book, Handbook of Practice Management, Small Projects Handbook, uh, RIBA Commercial Clients Guide, and Domestic Clients Guide to Engaging an Architect. There's an embarrassment of riches out there, which I'm sure you have read or are about to buy. So, welcome to you, Nigel. Could you first of all just introduce yourself, tell us about you, tell us about what Hawking Brown does? Sure, thanks. Um, so my name is Nigel Osteen. Um, I'm an architect at Hawkins Brown. Hawkins Brown is a practice of about 275 people and we work in five sectors. Housing, which is about a quarter of our work, education, third, uh, infrastructure, and uh, transport infrastructure predominantly, and then uh, commercial and what we call CCC, which is culture, civic and community buildings. We've got studios in London, where I'm based, where we're talking today, in Manchester and Edinburgh, and in the United States on the West Coast, which we set up last year with a focus on further education and transport infrastructure. My job title is Delivery Director, a role that encompasses matters regarding project process, knowledge management, risk management and uh, things like negotiating our legal appointments. Um, so sort of overall commercial issues and the sort of things, to be honest, that architects don't generally like doing, but, uh, but process is something that, that I've been interested in for some time. I spent early part of my career in the aviation sector, principally at Heathrow and Gatwick Airport, so at a time when uh, the chairman of BAA, as it was then, was John Egan, who wrote an influential report on, on how we could improve the construction sector. And the practice I was at at the time had three what were called demonstration projects, uh, one of which I was the project architect for. And BAA as a client were breaking new ground in applying lean processes to design and construction. Egan had previously been chairman of Jaguar and wanted to bring car manufacturing thinking into construction. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in and we're pushing very hard on here at Hawkins Brown is the whole notion of modern methods of construction, design for manufacturing and assembly. It's an area that we have considerable experience in, but something that we want to develop more. So, um, so certainly that's an area that, that we have interest in. And I think that has uh, implications for, clearly for the way that we design buildings, but also the way that they're procured. So it comes very much into the sort of areas that I... So how modern is a modern method of production these days? I mean, we've been talking about this for 25 years. Um, well, I think, the th I think when people talk about this, they tend to think of what we call volumetric pre-construction, so three-dimensional containerized construction, which uh, is part of the story, but absolutely not the whole thing. And I think there's a bit of a concern by a lot of architects about uh, how it can potentially restrict your ability to design buildings that relate to their physical environment. But it's certainly not a view that I take, and um, I think it's important that we 
that we use modern methods as far as is practical for that particular site. It doesn't have to be volumetric, and volumetric is, um, is probably one of the harder areas to use. But uh, um, certainly in each project now, we will look as a practice at the beginning of the design stage and say what level of, um, of off-site is appropriate for this. And it may be something which is to do with, I don't know, the, the service risers. Uh, it may be, um, so it may be sort of component-based rather than volumetric. So I think there's a whole range of issues. I think there's a degree of misunderstanding, and quite frankly, to my mind, if we're to solve some of the issues that we have in the industry at the moment, we have to address these. Mark Farmer of Cast Consulting brought out his report, Modernise or Die, um, about 18 months ago, and is a very firm advocate of this. And one of the things that he talks about is that we have to address procurement issues, how we, do, how we procure contracting work. And one of the issues is that we can't do it in the same way that we are at the moment. If we want to implement modern methods of construction, we have to engage with the suppliers right off the beginning of the design stage, at the beginning of RBA stage two. It's too late if we get to the technical design stage and then scratch our heads and wonder how we're going to build it. So there's a fundamental rethinking that has to happen. Well, we're pleasantly off beam to what I thought we might be talking about, but I'm happy to go this way for a short while. Tell me what what the answer is then. I mean, if you're saying what we're doing wrong and what we should be doing right, and there's a fundamental, as you say, fundamental problem needs to be resolved, how would you start going about it? I mean, how does Hawkins Brown do it, but on a more, more generic level, how do you see the industry still, presumably, I'm putting words in your mouth, but still making some of the same mistakes that Egan identified 30 years ago, uh, that now need to be still addressed? Yeah, we, we, it's true that we've been talking about this for a long time, and, and no, there's a frustration, I think, that nothing seems to have changed. But I do think that is changing now. Um, I, I think there is a need. We have, um, we have a massive skill shortage in, um, emerging in our industry, uh, particularly in construction. On the construction of the age of, yeah, <coughs> of the age of, of, the, of the people that are involved. There's the Brexit issue, which could affect um, what we have. And we need to find ways of getting around this. We also have a massive need for housing. We need to be building... That the figure has been going up progressively over each year as we are failing to meet the targets, but we're now saying it's over 300,000 homes a year we need to build. And the current supply chain, so the, the volume house builders, will at best build half of that. Um, so we have to find new supply chains. So I think there's a difference. Um, how do we do it? Well, as I say, I think it's something which you have to address right at the beginning of the design process, so um, of the concept design process. So. Once the briefing is established, end of RBA stage one, it's then saying immediately after that, what is appropriate for this building and this site? Um, so we are investing in developing skills in the, um, in the practice to make sure that, that the project architects can have that, have that knowledge and we do it through workshops and, uh, and so on at the same time. You are closely involved in the RBA Future Leaders Programme. So do you want to just say what it is, what it does? Well, I, I set up the Future Leaders Program a number of years ago, um, I've actually you know sort of passed that on to other people now, and I think it's uh, I think it's doing really well. But the point of that was um, to give architects the sort of skills or training in the sort of skills that we don't get certainly in university, and to a large extent you don't get as part of a part three curriculum. So it's issues like. People management, HR issues, it's about marketing and business development, and to some extent it's about financial management. So it's all those sort of business skills that you need as an architect. 
and things like leadership and uh, presentation skills. So those sort of things which are not a core part of what, uh, what we're taught at college, uh, but are vitally important. So, so yeah, we started that a few years ago and, and it's, been, it's picked up and it's become really, really successful now, I'm pleased to say. Very good. Well, I'm pleased to say that we do a little bit of that at Kingston, part three for anybody listening out there. A very nice segue into this conversation that we're going to have now, which will dip into a little bit of time management and uh, people management. But first of all, just sticking with you for a short while in terms of this, what you do and the fact that you've kind of written these books and they are, you know, they are bedside reading, they are library essentials for most architects' offices. You know, architects, the skill of writing is not something that comes lightly or easily to many architects. So how did you get into that? I mean, do you enjoy it? Is it the labour of love or is it something that, you know, you find is a a necessity that somebody has to do? Yeah, no, it's true. I think most architects, um, you know, I'm one of them, like to communicate with a pen drawing things, but I think, um, uh, but I have always enjoyed writing. So as a director of that practice I was talking about before, I was responsible for practice management and and business development, as many architects have to be. Um, But then in the, about, I don't know, where did we go, about 10 years ago, I was asked to write the eighth edition of the RBA job book. Um, for RBA Publishing, and then a couple of years later, the Handbook of Practice Management. I've since updated both those titles, bringing them in line with the plan of work as it emerged, and I've written a few other books as well, which, which you mentioned, the Small Projects Handbook and the Client's Guides to Engaging an Architect. So it's something which, um, which I started doing. You sort of do one, you get asked by the publishers to do another. It's something I quite enjoy. And, uh, and it, you know, writing a book or doing something like that does give you an opportunity to reflect on these issues. So it's quite good from your own personal development point of view to go through that. I think it's the same if you're doing a presentation. Um, you know, you need to get on top of the subject matter and make sure that you understand in a sufficient way that you can communicate that to people that, that they'll understand. So, no, it's something that I've enjoyed and, uh, and I think it's sort of you know, added to my experience. Well, as a I'm glad you enjoy it, otherwise it would be uh, terrible. <laughs> Uh, tragedy for you but look in terms of um, something you mentioned there about getting on top of the subject and and researching the background to it there's a conversation which goes on at the moment about social media and you are tweeting at Nigel Austin all one word and one of the benefits as is we're regularly told is of social media is its immediacy uh, and with regulations seemingly changing every time you turn around you know there are people now in offices who are getting fame and fortune by having many thousands of followers on Twitter by telling people about this kind of stuff. Now, I know you do that, but do you feel that the social media side of things will make the kind of books and the, you know, the laborious one-year writing, one-year publishing uh, turnaround of, of physical books that you write? Do you think they will become a little bit more redundant in the future and there'll be something else taking its place? Modern methods of publication? Yeah, well, I, I, I guess that will carry on happening. Um, it's difficult to predict what will happen in the future, isn't it? But... I guess it will. I think people still like hard copy books. I mean, I, I sort of combine reading, you know, on, on my sort of Kindle device and in hard copy, but um, I'm probably someone that still likes to print material out to read it. And I think there is some sense that, that, that we find that as, uh, you know, sort of as a, as a, as a more pleasurable way of, of getting our communication. But clearly, um, social media has a big part to play and uh, I think it's important that architects engage with that to communicate um, with their peers and with the industry as a whole and with clients so no practices uh, exist without having a website these days and that's considered 
really an issue of the past. We're looking at completely new methods now. You talk about social media, and I think it's important that we all embrace that as far as we can. Very good, very good. Uh, by the way, I tweet at uh, future underscore cities. Uh, so log in and uh, sign up. Um, so, um, Nigel, you're known for an understanding of architectural practice management. We've talked about some of these issues. I mean, you have broader interests as well, but you've seen the good and bad practice in this area. So I want to move on to talk about that particular area of work now. We discussed earlier about certain management uh, techniques and goals, how things maybe should be done. This is a kind of an impossible question, I know, but how should a practice define its goals I see from your smile that you're not really going to be able or want to answer this question, but how should a practice, in a generic way, be able to define its goals, whether, again, you're going to use this practice as an example or whether you have general advice for people? Yeah, well, look, this is quite a big, um, complicated area, but I I think, I suppose one of the things I'd say is that um, we need to, all practices, really, need to be better at business planning. We need to, that needs to be underpinned by some sort of mission statement. I think there's very much a place for that. It's got to be um, something that you can write down on one side of A4 that can be communicated to people within the practice and outside so that everyone understands what it is that we're, we're trying to do. Because the mission statement many years ago when they first came out was this kind of, everyone saw it as some kind of Americanized joke, didn't they? I mean, people were scribbling down and framing. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, I think it, whatever you call it, whether it's a mission statement or something else, I think it's important just to have a, a, a precise version of what you're trying to do that everyone can get to grips with and understand. Um, I mean, we have, we have a mission statement for every project. So at the beginning of every project, when I sit down with the project team, one of the things I do here, uh, and run through, um, basically make sure we've got it set up in the right way, so that might be to do with our legal agreements and so on. It's a whole range of other issues. One of the more important is to say, right, what is it we want to do with this project, um, which we call our mission statement. So it might be, hey, you know, this one has great opportunities, we could win the Sterling Prize with this one, so we'll focus on that. Or it might be, um, it might be that we want to do the project because it's going to help us have a, develop a better understanding of a particular field or whatever. But, but it's really important to have that. But they are, what, subsets of a office mission statement? Or? Yeah, so I think, I think it's important for architects to... Clients need to understand what it is that you're trying to do so that they know which architects to approach for a particular project. So it's important to have a brand. Um, I have to think that's something that Hawkins Brand does really well. I think people understand what it is where trying to do. It's a very people-focused uh, practice. Um, and, and I think that comes across. And every practice needs to decide what it is they want to do. Now, it's a business planning issue as well. So it's not just about the sort of work you want to do. It's, it's about the size of the practice, what you want to do in, the, in the sort of short, medium and long term. So, um, you know, so the question is about defining goals. Well, I think you've got to write them down. I don't think it's good enough to just have them in your head. You've got to write them down. Um, The principles of the the practice need to agree what they are between them, and they need to convey that to the rest of the people they're working with, both within the practice and outside the practice. really important. And what about things that maybe the office identifies as issues that they're not going to do? I mean, you know, there's certain areas, you know, you may be the residential expert and you're not going to touch 
prison sector, for example, right? That's, yeah. a, that's a given. But are there certain things in terms of management that you also need to define how, where your limits are? Yeah, well, I, I'd say, you know, Hawkins Brown has five sectors that we work in. They're pretty broad range of sectors, and that's that served us very well. So um, it's good to have a range of issue, of sectors that you can deal with to help manage the peaks and troughs um, in each one. So we've certainly got that, but at the same time, you've also got to know what your limits are. So there are sectors that we don't have experience in. We don't do healthcare, um, for example. We haven't got involved in, you know, the sort of things you were talking about there, sort of, um, you know, prisons and so on, which uh, some practices will make uh, a name for themselves. It's not an area that we've got involved in. So I think you need to know what you do well. So how would you do it then? So if somebody rings you up and offers you a job, what are the kind of processes of elimination or what, what, what computations do you make to work out whether you're going to take it on? Well, I suppose typically you're not the only person being phoned by that client. They'll probably be phoning a number of architects and saying, we'd like you to pitch for this. Okay. Um, you know, we do have clients who will just come to us and give us a job based on previous work, and that's fantastic. But a lot of the time that's not the case, and you're either um, in some sort of OG-type competition, which is broader, or you're in a limited competition. The client said, you know, I'm approaching five architects, we're going to pick one of you. Um, so I suppose the first thing is to decide, is this something that's winnable? And if you feel, for whatever reason, it's a bit of a long shot, then don't go for it, because you're just wasting time, wasting resources. So be very focused. So the first thing you think is, can we win this? Um, and then you think, what can we get out of this? So um, is it going to be a client who we're happy with, we know that they are a good client that we'd be happy to work with? Um, is it an opportunity for us to um, to design great building, which obviously we're always looking out to do? Um, is it an area where we could get some new experience? Now, I think you have to do that carefully. Um, I don't think you should go into it um, without thinking about the issues, because if it's something you're trying to get experience in, it probably means you're not going to do it quite as efficiently as a sector that you've previously got experience and you've learned the lessons. So. Um, but we need to do that. We need to broaden our, our understanding. All architects need to do that. Um, but you've got to do it in the right way. Okay. I think that comes on to these couple of headings in terms of which come under the management, main theme of people management, time management, quality management, that kind of thing. Uh, but there's lots of talk about people management, and especially in London at the moment, which seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, a fairly buoyant market still where offices want to retain staff. So there's a slightly different dynamic going on um, about how you make people content and happy and, and want to come back uh, and not move on. So is there a kind of a standard, I know there isn't a standard, but I'm going to ask you anyway, is there a standard do and don't list for managing people? I mean, I think probably again, if we go back maybe 30 years, there was that idea that the old sergeant major type approach to how you manage people and clock watching and you know whipping people into action was seen to be old school. And there was a little bit more of a social justice agenda which started to creep in. So. Give that as a given, are there still kind of fluctuations and certain things that you would advise how you should manage people? Um, I, I think the key thing is to have respect for each other, actually. Um, and that, that needs to go from top to bottom of the, of the business, of the practice. Um, if you have mutual respect for what each other do, then I think you're probably on the right path. I think there's something that uh, I think we do pretty well here. We have one employer of the year recently, which we're very proud of. We also have the best, we've recently, larger practices haven't been having to announce their gender pay gap. Hawkins Brown has the best, um, the smallest gender pay gap of all the practices that are announced, and it's something we're very proud of. Uh, we want to carry on improving, but I think that sort of goes to 
to show the way the practice is run. And then on a more personal level, I think it's, um, you know, management is something which you have to do actively. It's not a question of just asking someone to do something and leaving them to get on with it. I think as a manager, you have to really put the people that you're working with, who are within your team, say, you have to put them ahead of yourself. And I think the managers, that, the, the, the best managers of people are people that understand that and do that. But uh, they're really there, in a sense, to serve and help the people that are working alongside them within their team. Um, so, you know, these are, these are not new things, but um, it doesn't often happen. And sometimes architects do have a bit of a reputation for being a little bit didactic, perhaps, and, uh, you know, do it my way. But I think if we can adopt a more collaborative approach, and particularly in design, design works best when it's done in collaboration rather than as individuals. And it's something that we need to, um, we all need to make sure we do. Okay. Because it's interesting that there's... All of those things could be done quietly, softly, and you know you run a good office. But there is a kind of strange world of certification of these practices now, isn't there? You mentioned best employer, uh, gender pay gaps, frame certificates, what have you. I mean, you can get a BREAM certificate. Yeah, and it seems kind of very self-regarding, doesn't it? You know, here's all our certification and logos on our website. But is that just because it displays to the world that you've got them and you are a good employer, or is there something more to these? It's like an industry certification. I, I, I don't think you go after these things to have the certificate on the wall. That would be totally wrong-headed. I think the, the, the awards come as a result of a lot of hard work and trying to do things the right way, but it's nice to be recognised for doing that when it happens. Um, it's, it's also a good way of communicating to clients and, and you know, members of the people working in the practice. Of, of, you know, it goes back to that brand point I was talking about earlier. What sort of practice do you want to be? So it's a good way of communicating that. I suppose on a sort of broader level, there has been perhaps a move away from, uh, and I'm talking over probably the last you know, two, three decades at least, moving away from relying on professionalism and clients really want to have certification rather than that, which is a bit of a pity, but perhaps inevitable in many respects. So you, so, say, you say that as if they're contradictory? No, not contradictory, but what it means is that rather than um, clients relying on your professionalism, perhaps almost from an altruistic point of view in a sense, that, the, that there's now a greater predominance of wanting some sort of testing and assessment. So we have quality assurance, certification. Yeah, but doesn't that go against what you've just said? So there you're talking about, you know, in a practice that you have this kind of fantastic environment of trust. And then the one thing you point to with clients is that actually they don't trust you as a professional. They want to have a certificate and a form and they want some evidence. Well, I don't know. Maybe it says something about the way that we've been providing services for the clients. Maybe it says something about uh, the sort of advice that the clients are getting. It's difficult to know. I mean, it's actually interesting. What, um, the whole area of clients is something I've spent quite a lot of time looking at over the last few years. I chair a group at the RBA, uh, which we set up a number of years ago called the Client Liaison Group. And the whole aim of that was to provide a means for the RIBA to have a conversation with clients. And so we wanted to ask them um, value-based questions. What's, what do you think of the services that architects are providing? Um, do you think architects are giving you value? Um, those sort of issues. And we've done that through a, a range of, um, of processes. Um, and it's been interesting to see the sort of things that that they're saying. I mean, perhaps you might not be surprised by them, but um, the sort of feedback that we're getting is that clients 
uh, are interested in value. They want us to deliver value. Uh, we always complain about our fees and low level of remuneration, but despite that, clients are saying we still want to make sure that we're getting value. Um, they want us to listen to them. Um, so it goes back to the whole briefing process and understanding their needs. And again, that's very important in delivering value. Value is what the client wants. And, and, that, and, and the word value comes in its own parenthesis. It's not value for money. It's value. What is, what is, what, well, what I suppose ultimately it sort of is value for money. Um, but, but really value is... Um, I mean, I, I talked about my experience working with, uh, yeah. you know, with, with BAA. And they were, um, at the time, Egan was very much influenced by the car manufacturing industry, which went back to the Japanese way of thinking about lean design, lean thinking, and so on. So, quite a lot of it was um, was focused on that, and and there is a very clear definition of value that comes from that, which is really delivering to the customer, we say client, broadly what they want and at the time they want it and at an appropriate cost. Right. And we need to focus on that as architects. Uh, partly, we need to focus on it for our own good to, to make ourselves, frankly, more profitable. If we can improve productivity, then we will have more money to invest back into our business, into our processes, and carrying on improving. It's something which manufacturing does. Construction and construction consultants don't do that enough. We need to start getting into the habit of, uh, of measuring what we're doing and try and find ways of improving it. So this client group at the RDA is fundamentally a measuring group. Right. We're measuring, we're talking to clients, we're measuring their response and we're feeding that back to the members and saying this is what clients are saying they want, um, this is what you need to do um, to get to get work from them. Which is funny because it's like one of those areas that you started off by saying which uh, architects don't like to talk about. Architects are all about creatives and pen drawings on the back of a napkin but in fact they're running a business and uh, the bottom line is you have to continue that. Well business. look, I mean when you're, when you're what, 18 and deciding you're going to university and deciding you want to be an architect, what's in your mind? Certainly in my mind was that I wanted to design great buildings. I had no thought about business whatsoever. Um, and I think it's right in a sense that at degree level we're taught to be designers because um, I think the UK produces some of the best architects in the world. It's a fantastically well exported role that we have here. And it's because we have a really solid uh, design education at that stage. But Perhaps that is at the expense of some business understanding. Um, and one of the key messages of feedback that we were getting from clients in this RBA research was um, actually they were saying, you're great designers. You understand about the brief and you deliver great, uh, great design solutions. But what you need to improve is your project management, basically. Right. You need to, and, and financial management. So it's, it, it's safe. We're not the final arbiters of the cost of the building because the client plays a big role in that. Um, other consultants do as well. But clients want architects to own those sort of issues and they want to see leadership from us. And I think that's a really key message that I'd like to get across, that, um, that as architects, we've perhaps slightly lost some of our position over the last several decades. So we've given up project management. A long time ago, we gave up any interest in cost management and so on and so other consultants have come in to take that role we need to try and get that position back and refocus our position as leaders of the design team which the clients were very clear they absolutely want us to do this yeah. but we've got to roll our sleeves up and, and no the funny thing is i mean I, i've sketched something out here uh, in preparation for talking to you and one of them was the fact that generic students i've i've tended to see that a lot of them when you ask them a practical problem a scenario question or, or whatever it might be their fallback position tends to be, you know, I will 
ask a consultant, you know, whether it's a wayfinding consultant or a landscape consultant or whatever it might be. And, and there's a certain avoidance. I mean, it's very good that there will be necessary occasions where you'll have to ask a consultant for skills beyond your own. But at the same time, part of the architectural role, as far as I've always seen it, is that you've had a, a certain understanding of the nature of a problem and you can go some way towards resolving it before asking somebody to kind of step in on your behalf. Uh, and that kind of avoidance, maybe it comes down to the way that employers see architects, as you were saying before, that, that if we avoid our own responsibilities in this and pass it back on to other, into other players and other consultants, then hardly surprising that employers might rely on other people to deal with other areas. Yeah, I, I mean, I think as technology has developed and, uh, you know, we're no longer in a position that, that one person can know everything. You can't be the sort of renaissance man of architecture anymore. So you have to have some specialisation. But what I'm saying is I think despite that, the architect still needs to sort of act as the glue and, and, and act in a leadership role. So, you know, you might say, an expression I've used before is, you know, you need to be a jack of all trades and master of one. I mean, I don't know, I, I, I've often felt, looking back in the past, when I've been at project meetings as an architect, that uh, everyone else around the table knew more than me. But actually, what the case was that they all knew a lot about their area. So the engineers would be really yeah, quite focused, yeah. whereas we had to have a, a broader sort of area of knowledge. But we do need to specialise uh, in order to compete with other specialists, and that's increasingly the case. So we need to have, we talked about, you know, what areas do you focus on? And I said that we have, uh, here we have five sectors. Well, you need to be a, set, a specialist in, in the sector you're working in, because frankly, you can't compete with other people who are specialists. You won't win the job. Large practices can cover, you know, broader areas and can have a number of areas of specialism. Small practices need to think very carefully about how they run their business and they need to decide what their focus is. And it goes back, in a sense, to your earlier question about planning the business, um, business planning. You've got to know what it is you're trying to achieve and focus on that. I'm still a great believer in Renaissance man, as it happens. Uh, not that I'm suggesting that I'm anywhere near, but uh, I, I still aspire to it. And one day... Uh, I think partly that notion of a Renaissance man who, again, was toying around with all kinds of scientific experiments and sciences, sociology and physics and maths and whatever, uh, is kind of quite a nice way to see it, pulling stuff together and giving it a framework. But in terms of the coming back, just very quickly to finish off, I suppose, with the quality management, project management, it all comes down to, in some ways, time management. Um, and that, you know, the, the dreaded timesheet and all the rest of it. Again, are there certain things or any one recommendation that you could offer to, to listeners of this podcast about what they need to do? Well, I think, I think one of the things that we don't do well enough, um, I mean, as a, as a profession, uh, is to calculate what it's gonna, how much time it's going to take to do the job. So um, all too often we fall back on a, a notional percentage of the construction cost in the hope that that's going to be enough to do the work. What we have to do more robustly is to sit down and analyse exactly, stage by stage, what activities we have to produce, how long it's going to take us, how many person hours of work that is, what the cost of that time is, and then check that against what we're proposing to charge. And, and frankly, if it doesn't stack up, then we have to either try and get more fee, very difficult, or we have to manage the client's expectation in terms of the scope. But uh, all too often I think we go into projects um, a little bit too open-ended and uh, don't really know 
what the fee is going to achieve. So we start off, uh, architects are often uh, um, you know, known for going at a project until they've got the design right, which is fantastic. And that's why we're known as being good designers here in this country, because we have that sort of attitude. But at the same time, you've, you mentioned this, you're running a business, you have to put some parameters on it. And the best way to do that is to plan. So it's pure and simple project management programming type work. Yeah. We've got to do that. Yeah. And, and this goes back to what those clients were saying um, in the feedback. They were saying we're great designers, but we're not so good at project management. They want to see that in us. They want to see that we're prepared to, uh, to do those sort of things. They want us to be successful businesses. They don't want us to be uh, scraping along with very poor margins. They want to see that. Um, and we're only going to achieve that increase in productivity if we start doing that planning process. Yeah. I used to work for a practice that had three directors and they split it to one guy would guess from experience. One guy would do the entire timesheet kind of calculations on you know, man hours. Uh, one person would judge on the basis of previous work of similar nature and work out that, what the actual time was. And they'd all come together and they'd all be pretty well within it couple of quid of each other through experience but it's kind of it was a nice check I thought even though we've got rid of the RIBA compulsory fee scale thing strange that people are now looking at the architect's journal uh, handouts and what percentage we should be charging well I think, I think a lot of people still have that old blue book which had the fee scale in exactly, their back pocket exactly, somewhere exactly. don't they and we still we still think about it it's a convenient way of thinking about of back checking I mean I think when you do that uh, process I was suggesting of, uh, of, of going into some detail and working out all the activities you have to do and pricing them um, there's quite a danger that you'll overprice it if you do that. And a lot of the time when we do that, we realise, crikey, the fee is double what we think we can really get. But So it's a convenient way of going back and saying, well, what will the market bear for this sort of price? So, you know, is it a sort of 4 or 5% fee or is it a, you know, or, or whatever. So it's a convenient check. But what we must do is start measuring and understanding these things better. Fine, fine. Okay, any final points that I haven't asked you that you want to mention, talk about on these themes? I know there's kind of questions about management theory, which might be a little bit old hat. I um, no, I think I suppose one of the main things I wanted, to, as I say, I've, I've had this great interest in um, over the last few years through the RBA of of looking of understanding clients, and so I suppose oh, yeah. one of the key things I would say is that um, as architects, we've got to take the time to understand our clients better. Um, we have to constantly ask them how we're we doing, what what could we do better, and then making sure we do that. If you look at, there's a fantastic graph that I've used a number of times, actually it's quite a depressing graph, that shows the difference in productivity between manufacturing and construction. And over, it's produced by McKinsey, and over, I don't know, whatever the time scale is, it's sort of maybe the last um, 10, 15 years, um, productivity in manufacturing has, uh, has close to doubled. It's uh, so 1.7 climb. Uh, construction, if anything, is slightly dipped in that time. Um, so small wonder that main contractors get margins of 1% or 2% and the architects are constantly complaining about fee levels. Um, we've got to change that. And there's no point in us just sitting back and moaning about it. We've got to take steps to do that and, and find ways. And I, for me, that feeds back into what we were talking about earlier about the modern methods of construction, design for manufacturing assembly. I think if we can start doing things in a different way, um, there's a better future for us. Perfect. Positive note to end on, Nigel. Thank you very much. Obviously, the time is against us, or what Nigel would call bad time management. But thanks very much for a romp through the world of management and the way that uh, Hawkins Brown delivers their 
product or, or buildings for clients, as we used to call it. My name is Austin Williams. Hope you've enjoyed it and tune into the next one of the Professional Practice Podcast. Until then, if you have any questions, at future underscore cities. See you next time.